Hello and welcome to the Securities Compliance Podcast presented by the National Society of Compliance Professionals, where it is our mission to help you put compliance in context. I'm your host, Patrick Hayes, Senior Counsel at the Calfee Law Firm, and on today's show, we welcome in the President of the North American Securities Administrators Association, Melanie Lubin, for an insider's look into what's happening at NASA, including new areas of focus like continuing ed, Reg BI, senior investors, and much more. In our headline section, the first ever Bitcoin-linked exchange-traded fund began trading earlier this week on Tuesday, October 19th. And the SEC provides comments on the regulatory issues involving GameStop trading back in January 2021. Finally, we'll wrap up today's show with another installment of History Has Your Back, as we review a posthumous quote from one of the world's most well-traveled chefs to better understand how we can maximize our knowledge in compliance. Diving into the headlines portion of the show, the first ever Bitcoin-linked exchange-traded fund began trading earlier this week on Tuesday, October 19th. The launch will mark another crazy milestone in what has been a very notable year for the cryptocurrency market. The ProShares Bitcoin Strategy ETF will trade under the ticker symbol BITO on the New York Stock Exchange. The ETF will invest primarily in Bitcoin futures contracts and not directly in in, in Bitcoin itself. The company said BITO can be bought and sold just like a stock and doesn't require investors to hold an account at a cryptocurrency exchange or even have a crypto wallet. A quote from the ProShares CEO, Michael Saper, said, we believe a multitude of investors have been eagerly awaiting the launch of a Bitcoin-linked ETF after years of efforts to launch one. The arrival of the Bitcoin futures ETF comes as the crazy cryptocurrency market has shattered the $1 trillion market cap threshold, helping the broader crypto market grow to a market value exceeding $2 trillion. But it's not just the pro shares. ETF that's on the docket right now. There are four other proposed Bitcoin ETFs in line for an October decision from the SEC. In addition to ProShares, you have Valkyrie Investments, Invesco, and VanEck. More than just Bitcoin, other firms are waiting for a crypto ETF decision from the SEC that include Fidelity, Wisdom Tree, Wilshire Phoenix, VanEck, First Trust, Skybridge, and of course, Valkyrie. Whichever fund secures first approval could gain a significant first mover advantage as many, many investors appear eager to get exposure to the price of the digital asset in their more traditional brokerage and retirement accounts. For our next headline, in a new report, the SEC reviewed the regulatory issues involving the GameStop trading event in January 2021. The SEC concluded that the event itself requires the agency to give further consideration to a couple key concepts, including shorting the settlement cycle, strategies to increase customer trading, dark pools and wholesalers, and short selling. On the shorting the settlement cycle side, the SEC explained that shorting the settlement cycle could mitigate the effects of acute margin calls on more thinly capitalized broker-dealers without necessarily diminishing the role of clearinghouses in risk management. With regard to broker-dealer strategies to increase customer trading, the SEC highlighted that they believe there to be a direct correlation between the incentives created by payment for order flow and the increased use of digital engagement practices, or DEPs or DEPs as they're otherwise known. For dark pools and wholesalers, the SEC underscored that wholesalers who are increasingly handling individual investor order flow 
face far fewer transparency requirements than other exchanges or other alternative trading platforms. And finally, with regard to short selling, the SEC recommended improved short sales reporting to better understand how shorting affects price dynamics. SEC Commissioners Peirce and Roisman criticized the report as being too narrative and trying too hard to kind of awkwardly intertwine, I think, was the term of art they used, an account of events which, with unrelated SEC-level policy discussions. They further argued that the policy discussions should consider both the operations of the equity market and previous SEC actions. As to payment for order flow, they argued that before any action, the SEC must take into account, one, the cost-saving benefits for investors, two, the potential for conflicts, and three, recently finalized SEC rulemakings, which narrowed quoted spreads and improved the display of odd-lot quotations. Chair Gensler summarized the report's conclusion, stating that this review of the GameStop event presents the SEC with an opportunity in how the SEC can further efforts to make the equity markets as fair, orderly, and efficient as possible. As a practical takeaway, I'm really glad the SEC took the time to review the activity and provide a report, but I think there was a bit of an opportunity missed in the sense that another part of the story that would be really beneficial, especially if we're going to try to learn from the GameStop event, is a deeper dive on the ways in which retail information, retail investors get information, and certainly how those investors were receiving information in this particular case, how they traded on that information, and how so much related trading activity could be happening outside the confines of a proper exchange. As we move into the interview section of today's show, I am incredibly pleased to welcome in Ms. Melanie Lubin. Melanie serves as the current president of the NASAA, or NASA, a position which she began in September 2021. Uh, Melanie Lubin joined the Maryland Division of Securities within the Office of the Maryland Attorney General early in her career and was appointed by the Maryland Securities Commissioner in 1998. Uh, throughout her years as a Maryland securities regulator, Commissioner Lubin has also led numerous leadership positions within NASA. She began her term as president of NASA, as I mentioned, in September 2021. Prior to her presidency, Ms. Lubin has served on the NASA Board of Directors as a director, secretary, and treasurer, and has chaired the organization's Central Registration Depository Investment Advisor Registration Depository Steering Committee, as well as the Investment Advisor Section Committee and the Corporation Finance Section Committee. Commissioner Lubin has also served on various NASA committees, including the Federal Legislation Committee, Senior Issues and Diminished Capacity Committee, Electronic Filing Depository Steering Committee, and the Regulation Best Interest Implementation Committee. She clearly has a wealth of experience, and we are incredibly fortunate to have her on the show. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. So really, there's so many different things. I mean, we just got to hear about your background, which uh, is uh, really shows a, an incredible depth and wealth of experience. And there's so many things that are going on right now that, that I think we could uh, start to dig into. But I think it would be really beneficial for our listeners who may not know as much about NASA as they do some of the other regulators that are out there, like the SEC and FINRA. CFTC and the MSRB, who we actually had on the show a little bit earlier this year. So I guess my first question for you would just be, you know, I would love to know uh, what is the NASAA and how it was formed. 
So I would say we're NASA, like the space people with an extra A. It's the North <laughs> American Securities Administrators Association. And we're, our members are the people who are the state securities administrator in all 50 states, D.C., um, U.S. Virgin Islands, Puerto Rico, the Canadian provinces, as well as Mexico. So we have about 67 members and, you know, meet regularly to have a whole structure set up with committees assigned to work on different substantive areas and, you know, work on model rules, model legislation. Our mission is investor protection. And, you know, we work in a coordinated manner to, you know, to meet our mission. That's great. Yeah. So let's talk about the, the mission a little bit, because obviously, look, you just mentioned with that many different members, right? 67 different members in dare in various territories. And obviously each one of those may have some many, many uh, uh, an alignment of interest for sure. But I guess talk, talk a little bit about the, the mission of the NASAA and and kind of some of the different items that, that you would say are of particular importance when it comes to, again, providing guidance to all 67 of those different jurisdictions. So the jurisdictions we probably really ought to concentrate on for purposes of this discussion are the U.S. jurisdictions. So that's like 53 jurisdictions. Almost all, but not all, of the state securities laws are based on the model security, the model state securities act, which is a statute that had passed in 1956. There was another iteration of it in like 84, 85, and then another one in 2001. And just about every jurisdiction has some version of the Model Act. The vast majority of them were based on the 56 statute, and then a lot of them updated either wholesale replacement with the 2001 statute or cherry-picked to change their statute to get it up to speed with, with the new provisions that you know went into the 2001 that might not have been in the 56 or the 1983 or 84, whatever the other one was. So we really are working from a very uniform base that we all have. We have jurisdiction over securities products um, as far as the offerings, and all those offerings need to be registered or exempt or now preempted post-NISMIA, which was the 1996 statute of the National Securities Markets Improvement Act that bifurcated a lot of jurisdiction between the SEC and the states. So, you know, we're, we're acting, you know, we're dealing with securities registration, preemption and exemption. We address investment advisor regulation, another area that's bifurcated between the SEC and the states based on the investment advisors assets under management. More than 100 million, um, they're SEC or we call federal advisors. Less than 100 million in assets under management, they're state investment advisors, unless they had to register in a certain number of jurisdictions, and then that'll kick them back into federal registration. So we've got that area. We've got the broker-dealer and the stockbroker registration area that we share um, substantially with FINRA for the stockbrokers and the firms, the SEC a little bit for the firms. So they, it's all very coordinated, and we work on developing you know, guidelines for registrations and exemptions or model approaches to deal with broker-dealer registration, investment advisor registration, and the regulation of those firms that, you know, that come from the fact that we're their primary regulator and um, there are registrants. Right. Right. No, that's, that's really, really helpful context and background. And I think, you know, certainly like even I can remember early on in in the pandemic, uh, like back in 2020, more near the start of the pandemic, the NSCP actually had representatives from the NASAA 
come on to one of their bi-weekly calls for registrants to talk about all the different things that you were working on. And again, that kind of coordination, I guess, is what I was getting to there with uh, how, how well coordinated you all were as far as, um, again, being able to be, be nimble and flexible as a result of some of the geopolitical things that were going on. So maybe on that front, I mean, speaking of kind of what's, what's happening now, I would love to dig into, you know, what, what are some of the the current initiatives that you know NASA is is really focused on now? What are what are some topics that are particularly important to your membership and obviously then the the underlying investors in each one of those jurisdictions? So our mission really is protecting investors from fraud and abuse, conducting investor education, providing guidance and assistance in the regulatory framework. So we do have the coordination that we were just talking about. You know, and ultimately helping, you know, capital formation in a way that ensures that investors are protected and that, you know, capital formation is is taken care of appropriately and within, you know, compliance with our statutes. So, you know, we're, we're always, we have a bunch of different areas that we concentrate on and there are always initiatives in different areas. So the way we're set up as far as our structure is we have different sections. One addresses investor education another one for investment advisors, another one for broker-dealers, one for corporate finance, and another one dealing mostly with enforcement actions. And each one of those um, sections concentrate on particular issues that are arising, you know, in those areas on an annual basis and stay on top of things and then provide training on new issues. And we also have another group of committees that function under the board's auspices for you know, hot topics and things that are coming up. So, for instance, we have a regulation uh, regulation best interest working group that has a lot of initiatives in that area, um, and we can go into that in more detail later. So, like, Reg BI is something that's really important. We have a couple of new model statutes, one that's designed to deal with whistleblower protection, another one that's uh, a restitution fund, uh, sets up a restitution fund for defrauded investors. That's another initiative. Work with the SEC on in, on items of mutual interest. We work with FINRA on items of mutual interest. We have a new uh, a new investor education piece that's really important to people about trusted contacts that we did jointly with the SEC and with FINRA. We get involved at the federal level with federal legislation. We're working with members of Congress now on issues arising out of self-directed um, investment retirement accounts, you know, known as SIDRAs. So, and we work through this whole structure to coordinate. So, you know, what comes out can be adopted state on a state by state basis. And we're, you know, we're working together because a lot of the things we deal with, you know, there, there's not really a big state law, you know, a big state border where something's going to stop at the edge of one state and then, you know, stop, you know, just stop within the borders of Maryland and then, right. you know, not get right. picked up in any of our bordering states. Right. And particularly in states like Maryland, where we have a tri state area, you know, in Maryland, DC and Virginia. Or, you know, states like New York, where they've got New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut, any place that you've got, you know, a big concentration of states, we all work in a coordinated basis because everything that's going on in our state, you cross the street, you're in another jurisdiction, and it goes on in that jurisdiction. And there's no, you know, in my years of doing this, there used to be a lot more deals that were more, very much more local. 
because it involved with meeting people, you know, all those things that used to happen in hotels on the weekends as far as, you know, big seminars and, right. and you, know, you know, free lunches, free dinners, you know, they lock you in the hotel, whatever, you know, whatever goes on with that. that that's morphed into, you know, it started happening over the phone and now it happens online and happens through social media. So there are, you know, the state borders work well for certain things like, you know, licensing and things like that. But fraud, unfortunately, knows no boundaries. And we all very much coordinate to, you know, try and shut down frauds that are, you know, that are ripping off investors. Sure. No, that's that's really helpful background. One of the things that you mentioned that maybe I think it'd be really, uh, really beneficial for our audience to kind of get to go through and, and hear about uh, some of the different specific you know, focal points, focal items of the various kind of, you know, divisions or sections that you talked about. You talked about, you know, that, that NASA has uh, one, one, you know, group uh, that's, you know, specifically focused on investment advisors. I know one of the things that um, has been particularly uh, high on the uh, uh, state investment advisors uh, list of, of things to keep their eye on of late is the investment advisor continuing education uh, you know, initiative, uh, the, the IARC. So, and maybe one thing that might be helpful, I would love to get your sense of, you know, where does kind of the IRC stand now? Um, and then maybe the, the, the follow-up question to that would be, you know, what are some of the, uh, uh things that firms should be looking at now to help prepare for that? So NASA adopted IARCE, Investment Advisor Representative Continuing Education, a little more than a year ago, and the program is going to launch January 1st of 2022. And what there are five states already that have adopted that. It's uh, Michigan, Mississippi, Nevada, Vermont, and Wisconsin. There are other states, including Maryland, that are working to getting to to adopting those provisions before the end of the year. But it depends. There are a lot of states that are working on getting them adopted. It all depends on, you know, do you have to go to your legislature to do it? Can you do it by rule? Can you get the rule process through in time? So I would, you know, recommend to people that they keep an eye on the NASA website. We have a whole page about investment advisor rep continuing ed and to see as states come on board. But we know those five states probably with four or five other ones likely are going to start the pro we're going to start the requirement in January, January 1st of 2022. So what's involved in that program? The program requires 12 hours of continuing education a year, six in ethics and six basically in um, our practice requirement. And what goes on is that the rep is responsible for taking the continuing ed. They go to a particular vendor who hopefully has pre-qualified their course because we have a whole process set up in order to get the course content pre-qualified as sufficient to meet the, the standards of the program. And that the rep signs up, takes the, the continuing ed, the vendor reports it. There's a, a system that's going to be set up through IARD slash CRD, similar to what goes on on the FINRA side, and that information gets reported into the states through the system. The rep has, the reps have a year to, you know, have to do 12 credits in, in the first each year. They have to report it through the system. We have some grace periods built in in case they you know, they can renew if they haven't finished it. You finish their 12 credits and they have that next year to finish what they haven't finished, plus finish the 12 credits that are required for that year. And if they don't fulfill that by the end of, you know, 
after they renew one year, go into that next year deficient. The following year, they won't be able to renew unless they fulfilled the, you know, the continuing ed that they hadn't completed. So in that way, it's a little bit different than FINRA continuing education, because if you renew what's called uh, CE deficient, you, you are not allowed to conduct business. This is a new program. Because it's a new program, they'll have a grace period and the ability to make up what they missed the prior year during that, that one year of registration. We also, in developing the program, because we've been working on this for quite a while, recognize that a lot of people in, in the investment advisor rep space are also stockbrokers. You know, they're FINRA registrants. Right. They may have credentials from, you know, they might be a CFP, they might have a CFA, CIC, PFS, you know, any one of the number of credentials that might substitute for the Series 65 or 66 exam. So there's processes set up to recognize fulfilling that continuing education as sufficient to qualify for, um, for the NASA IARCE. So, you know, the reps, the firm should pay attention to it, but we are recognizing some other CE that's been fulfilled. So we don't want to, you know, pile on more for somebody who's already staying on top of things. But there is a big population that, you know, within the IAR registrants who weren't required to take CE in any context. And we wanted to fill in that gap. Yeah. You, you mentioned a couple of different things that I think is really important and that I, I want to kind of even just reiterate because it, it shows... I would say a lot of forethought on behalf of NASA in the sense of, you know, the fact that you, knowing that this is going to be a new rule, uh, the the kind of additional, you know, grace period or whatever, however you might term that, where you're going to help firms kind of come into compliance, I think is really important and obviously shows uh, an understanding that. So, you know, lots of firms have uh, limited, you know, resources, means, et cetera. And so people often wear multiple hats um, in, in different state registrants. The other one that, that that I find interesting or that, again, I, I very much appreciate as someone who, you know, look, I've got to got to do continuing legal education. There are other certifications I've got to do in order to keep up on the investment side as well. And and um, uh, I, I the idea that right, you you might be able to apply for certain parts of that uh, continuing education so that it's not duplicative, right? You're not like having to, to redo stuff uh, if in fact some of the educational sessions and other stuff you might be going to could serve a dual purpose. I think that's that's a really effective landing spot. So, Right. And I just I should add that people shouldn't presume that the continuing ed that they're doing necessarily qualifies because there is a qualification, a pre-qualification process for sure. the courses to make sure that, you know, if it's something somebody's taking in the insurance space or they're taking it in the CPA space or the legal space, because there are plenty of lawyers who are IAs, that that whatever curriculum they're taking in that other space is sufficient to fulfill the standard. So we have a process set up, and there's a lot more information about this on the website, about how vendors can apply and make sure that their classes, you know, meet our curriculum requirements also. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. No, and, and again, thank you for, for clarifying that. Um, glad to hear, again, just to, uh, that, that NASA has the the process set up, and, and certainly for firms out there that um, are, are looking into that, that, that would be a great, uh, a great, you know, resource to explore. Another item that certainly would affect the, the IA space, um, but that also then starts to, to bleed into other areas or sections 
uh, that, that NASA has uh, would be regulation best interest. <laughs> um, and certainly that's yeah. going to not, you know, it's certainly going to affect IAs. But but I think uh, for many of our broker dealer members on on uh, that, that are listening to the podcast here, I'm sure they uh, would uh, uh, probably say that that their you know business and operations were, uh, you know, definitely impacted by that rule. And if I remember right, I think NASA had a couple different phases of of as far as like the efforts that it was making on a couple of different fronts. So maybe talk a little bit about, you know, what NASA has done in the first phase of of kind of rolling out and in, in, in its its efforts uh, there and maybe what's you know coming down. What, what's going to be happening in phase two or three of that? Okay, so so I, as I had mentioned earlier, we have a large group of subject matter experts from different states working on Reg BI. And before the implementation of it, which was, a, you know, I guess it started during COVID, so, you know, more than a year ago now, we had done what we call phase one of a basically an audit, an across-the-board audit of investment advisors and broker-dealers, where we sent out surveys and asked for information about what was going on in the firms to find out what, to get a baseline on, you know, what was going on in the firms with, with a whole bunch of different issues. So that kind of set up our baseline so we could decide, so what did the firms do to change their behavior after Reg BI was implemented? You know, lots of areas of concern, contests, you know, all kinds of conflicts, you know, and a contest fall into that category. Costly, complex, risky products, you know, what happens with that? You know, what kind of oversight is done in the firm because, you know, because there's now Reg BI is, you know, best interest is now the standard versus suitability being the standard. So we asked a whole lot of preliminary questions. We've just gone through um, the beginning of phase two. That was phase one. And, you know, we had announced our findings and everything else. Again, it's something people can take a look at on the NASA website, which is NASAA.org and see what we found there. It's actually a good resource for people to take a look at what was going on in firms because we got very good response rates as in their own firms as well as other firms and what you know what the firms were doing in order to you know before reg b you know before reg bi went into place some might have been moving towards compliance already with reg bi but but again that was the baseline so we've just gone through the beginning of phase two, where we've gone back out to the broker dealers, but the first phase one was broker dealers and investment advisors. We've gone back out to broker dealers to find out what's going on now. You know, what, what are their practices now? Ask very, you know, ask similar questions and expanded questions and ask some questions in other areas. So what are they doing now to comply with Reg BI? And we're analyzing that information, and there'll be some information released in the not too distant future about that. And, you know, see, you know, where are there still issues? You know, is Reg BI really doing what it's supposed to do? Does it, is there a difference between how firms are were handled, handling a suitability standard and are now handling a customer best interest? You know, is that enough of a difference to really get up to something that's best interest, or should we still be looking at um, whether fiduciary duty is appropriate? So we're going to use the information we're getting from phase two to to see, you know, what comes next within phase two. So we're early in phase two, you know, and assessing the information that came out from our, you know, latest. Basically, it's an audit, but, you know, it's not it's not an on-site audit, but asking the firms what they're, you know, what they're doing. Yeah. 
and and knowing that you all are still in in the very early stages of that phase two process probably a little bit too early to, to say anything definitive so i won't i won't put you on the spot like that <laughs> but but i guess you know in the preliminary results that you've seen you know are there certain areas in particular that you would say wow here are where a lot of the weak points are in firms compliance programs or at least maybe a trend that we're seeing on that front as far as this is a consistent weak point in firms maybe that have gone down this path and trying to address right bi or uh the uh the other kind of follow-up question might, might be or are there other things that you've seen again preliminary trend lines but that that you would say these are the things that firms should really look at changing as far as their compliance programs go so I don't really have results yet, you know, from the mo from the latest surveys, but I can tell you areas where we were concerned about going into it and that are concentrating on, you know, we're very concerned about the conflicts because, sure, sure. you know, in a lot of ways, states have taken the position very often that advisors can't really just disclose away conflicts. They really need to eliminate the conflicts. So... Going into the broker dealers, we're looking at, you know, the things like, you know, what's really changed in behavior, you know, in their behavior. And a lot of the focus is on, you know, costly, complex, risky products, you know, things that aren't liquid, things that the real incentive for the sale is because they're very high commission products because they tend to be the riskier products. And so how are the firms handling those things? How are firms handling sales contests? You know, things that provide an incentive to the broker to, you know, act to the broker's best interest more than in the client's best interest. And, and how, have, how have those kinds of behaviors changed? You know, there's other things we're interested in. You know, how effective is the form CRS in making disclosures? You know, is that helping customers? Is it making it more confusing? And really, you know, the ultimate goal is for us to, to make a determination about, whether the rule as it stands is really moving, you know, has, you know, raised the bar for how brokers act in relationship to their clients and, are, you know, is it really driving the behavior towards the customer's best interest? So, you know, we're waiting, you know, the committee that's looking at it is going to, you know, do all the assessments, you know, make recommendations to the NASA board and the NASA membership about and also to the SEC about what changes may need to be made. And then we'll, you know, we'll respond accordingly. Uh, there are also some states out there that are taking a look at putting their own standards in place. You know, so there are some proposals in a couple of jurisdictions, and I won't name names now to, you know, to point, to, to point anybody <laughs> right. out, but yeah, you, you, right. can yeah. Google, you can sure. Google it because I, I don't want you to call my colleagues and, you know, say, Melanie said that, you know, you're doing this and I missed it because I, I, I really don't think people have missed it. But... You know, to see if, you know, for support or not of moving towards a fiduciary obligation. Yeah, no, thank you. That that was really, really helpful background and context. And I appreciate you going into uh, uh, providing, again, some of those very high level thoughts on it. It is interesting. And, and certainly that idea about focusing on conflicts as as being an area that where, again, a lot of firms should should hopefully provide the proper, you know, internal uh, controls and, right. and have compliance program and structures built around. One, one area that is a, certainly a worn path 
as it relates to, uh, um, I think firms, again, should be on uh, notice to make sure they have proper controls in place is another area that's rife with with conflicts, which is the senior investors space. And, and I know that in particular, NASA has done a lot of great work in this space. I think really NASA has been a, a leader in a lot of ways in, in the, the different model rule that, that you all have put together. That's uh, many different states. I'll, I'll let you give the official numbers in case, in case any have, have come up in the past week or two that I may have missed. But, um, but, but again, you all have been a real, a real leader in this space. And, and so would love to hear from you on, you know, what, what is NASA? Maybe let's start with, you know, certainly uh, what's happening at NASA, right? Maybe talk a little bit about the the model rule that you all put together several years ago, how many states ha have adopted the rule. And then are there any other kind of really interesting uh, things that NASA is working on right now to help continue to kind of bring the senior investors issue to the forefront? Okay, so I'm going to flip that just a little bit and make make my pitch up front for a new investor education piece that we have out for trusted contacts. Okay. That's another project that started a, quite a while ago. And I was involved in like some of the early stages of that project when we were talking to investment advisors about what they require. And we were interviewing some investment advisors about what their practices were. And this was even before the Model Act to protect seniors was passed. Mm -hmm. And what what was really interesting when we we're talking to some investment advisors, and these were tended to be like smaller, you know, three, four person shops, is that they were say they told us that they would not accept clients if the clients were not willing to give them a trusted contact. Interesting. And, and this was in the stage where we were really worried about exploitation and learning more about diminished capacity and how, you know, the studies show that in the diminished capacity space, numbers and math and things like that are one of the first things that start to go when people start moving into the phase of diminished capacity. And the numbers of how many of us will move into that phase, God be willing, we're here to get to that phase, right. re really are scary. So having somebody like a trusted contact, it's not a power of attorney. It's just, it is someone who can be called if something's going on. So that we have an investor ed piece out that we did along with, we did with FINRA and with the SEC, and we're really trying to get the word out. It's something that, you know, firms can use, your compliant, you know, your members can give their compliance, you know, can take from compliance and give it to the business side and say, this is important. Here's the explanation. Customers, particularly elderly customers, tend to be worried that somebody's going to get their hands on their money and all the things that we've taught them to be worried about but want them to understand that a trusted contact is not a power of attorney, but it's someone that, you know, if you're, you're the person you have a professional relationship with starts to get a little bit worried about what's going on, they could pick up the phone and call that other person. So that's my little pitch for the trusted contact. We have the Model Act to protect vulnerable adults from financial exploitation. It's been adopted in 32 jurisdictions. What that statute pretty much mandates juris by jurisdiction by jurisdiction is that if the financial services professional suspects that there's some financial exploitation going on, that they report to Adult Protective Services, they report to the Securities Division, and it will allow them, and there's timeframes and things like that set up, to execute on a transaction when they hear about that, you know, when they're told by the client to execute on that transaction, but then hold the disbursement of the funds, which is critically important. 
Right. You know, right. we've got some cases going on in Maryland because Maryland's one of the jurisdictions that adopted it where we have one romance scam, what we're pretty sure is a romance scam going right now. And the um, the investor who is a widow, her husband um, was a CPA and made some smart investments. She has no family, so she's not worried about where she's leaving her money. But we think at this point might have been defrauded about three quarters of a million dollars by someone who she thinks you know is going to have a they're going to have a life together down the road. Oh man! And this con artist is really a horrible individual. I mean, tell, you know, he's got the story set up where he's convinced her he owes money to somebody else who is going to hurt him if he can't pay. Immediate threat. Right. right. And and it's, it's, it's textbook. How do you run a, how do you run a romance scam? Oh man. And despite a lot of best efforts, talking to her lawyer, talking to her, sending her information about romance scams, she, her point of view is kind of, I have plenty of money. I could spend my money on what I want to. And she can, but spending it on a scam is not really what people (laughs) ultimately want to spend their money on. You know, if she doesn't know what to do with her money, we could all tell her some wonderful charities who could benefit really well from it or let her go on a round the world trip for the rest of her life. But exactly, you, you know, it shouldn't go to a con artist. So we get those reports. That's a report that came in from her brokerage firm. And we think on the banking side, that her bank made, you know, made reports because there are, uh, there are other banking requirements that have been in place a lot longer, reporting requirements that have been in place a lot longer than the securities requirements. So, you know, kind of we're trying to circle the wagons to try and protect her, but we're doing what we can and would probably, we wouldn't know about it, but for the statute. Right. So, so, you know, it's adopted in 32 jurisdictions. There are also FINRA requirements that go along with things like that. If it's, you're dealing with a broker dealer, so there's significant steps towards protecting seniors. You mentioned a little bit earlier the kind of like report and hold process. You know, would you say that firms have generally done a good job of adopting that part of the process where, again, you know, even if they have very, as soon as they start to kind of sniff that there's some might be something running afoul, they obviously don't want to hold back the trades, uh, but they do want to hold the disbursements. Have, have you found that to be pretty successful? I think it's been successful. I think to the extent firms are aware of it and are following it. I think there's still a lot of work to be done to get the word out so the firms can realize really how helpful that process can be because it does, you know, they liquidate and hold, they get in touch with us. We can then start to do what we can do in APS, Adult Protective Services, can start to do what they can do in order to, (coughs) excuse me, get to the victim and try and explain to them what's going on and hopefully talk them out of transferring the money. Yeah, that's, again, really good background. (laughs) You mentioned earlier one of the examples of, again, a very unfortunate scam that is likely going on right now, the romance scam you mentioned. You know, are there any other examples of scams that you've seen recently that, that might again, just help raise awareness uh, for some of our uh, investment advisor, broker dealer and, and other reps uh, that are out there, uh, some of those folks. So they can try to if they see something like this, they might be able to try to prevent it from occurring in the future. Uh, yeah, I think it's 
It's really important because I frequently say when I'm talking to compliance groups or industry groups, they see what's going on before we usually hear about it. So you'll have somebody come in and all of a sudden, you know, somebody who's retired and elderly who basically looked at making an investment as you put it away and you're never going to touch it, you know, until they absolutely need it, you know, down the road or they're leaving it to their kids or whatever their plans are. All of a sudden there's big chunks of money coming out of their accounts. So when you notice, and this isn't diminished capacity necessarily, this isn't anything like that, but it's a change in behavior where all of a sudden somebody's accessing their brokerage account when basically all anybody ever saw was money going into the account and dividend reinvestments and not anything where all of a sudden there's big check or, you know, big withdrawals coming out of that account. So that's, you know, that's really, that's a huge red flag. So, you know, if if my father-in-law, who's 96, all of a sudden walked into his brokerage firm and started liquidating things, I think they would call because it's such a change in behavior. Right. So that so that that is it's kind of like it's like the first detector and then they can come to us as first responders. And, you know, if they want to hold, they have to tell us that's what the law requires. Right. So working together with this is the way for us to shut it down. So, you know, it's a change in behavior. It's things like, you know, there's big chunks of money coming out and we might get involved and talk to the, you know, talk to the account holder. I'm buying a car or I'm helping somebody else build a house or all of a sudden I'm renovating my house. But the kinds of things that people don't really do. And, you know, we are experienced talking to people and, you know, about talking to victims and doing investigations and you can tell when you start to talk to people is this a legit story you know we have another one in maryland right now where someone has been told that somebody who's not an investment advisor or anything like that is trying to bring a defunct auto company back to the state that the governor is involved that the president and the vice president of the united states are involved in trying to bring this defunct or at least to function wow. in the United States, sure. you know, car brand back into the state of Maryland. <laughs> Most of us will look at that and say, are you kidding me? <laughs> but the person who's getting the money from this poor lady is somebody she trusts. Sure, sure. So, and somebody she thinks would never hurt her. Right. Oh, man. So, you know, those kinds of things where somebody can say to us, you know, and this was a, tr- a trusted contact. This didn't come through like the brokerage firms or financial professionals reporting it. This was like kind of her trusted contact who she's not talking to now telling us about it. And then all of a sudden, you know, even though she was had been talking to us about it before, she said, oh, no, I never invested anything. So right. now you're concerned about what is, you know, this person she's been dealing with who she thought she could trust. What kind of pressure is that person putting on her now? Right. So there's a lot of intimidation. It could come from caregivers. It could come from somebody, you know, who's a service provider to somebody for one reason or another. And it's just really important to be, you know, people call it your spidey sense. You know, you're talking sure. to somebody and it just doesn't seem right. It doesn't hang together. And I, you know, I'm big from the better safe than sorry school, but I'm a regulator. So, you know, <laughs> I, I would speak up and if, you know, the person can't understand that you're doing something to protect them, then you worry about the relationship down the road, but, you know, make sure that they have the money and they're not going to be out on the streets, you know, because somebody's defrauded them yeah. of their entire life savings. Yeah. 
No, I, well, I appreciate all of those examples. And, and you certainly touched on, I think you, you hit the nail uh, on the head of a couple major themes that, that you see a lot in, in that area. Um, another one that I've seen, and it gets to what you mentioned, where you've got like, you know, a primary caretaker or caregiver that often, unfortunately, um, uh, starts to, to use the person they're caring for's age or diminished capacity uh, to take advantage of them. But where, you know, a, a, one example that that uh, where I was working with an advisor to help, again, kind of report this up to the proper uh, to the proper authorities in, at the time was where you had a, a, an elderly woman and uh, the person, um, her, her son, who was also a beneficiary, the, the woman had been taking pretty consistent, you know, disbursements of cash over a period of time. And then all of a sudden she really upped the volume, like mm -hmm. the, the actual number involved with those disbursements. And rather than going directly to her, that her, you know, her son was going to pick him up <laughs> directly. Right, right. Uh, and, and yeah, so, it's a change in behavior. That's kind right. of a red flag that something yeah. else is going on. Yeah. Well, thank you for all of that background on the senior investors stuff. Let's maybe pivot quickly uh, and, and kind of do a bit of, we'll cover a couple topics here on some other rulemaking and other, uh, I know, kind of active initiatives that NASA is working on that I think it'd be really good, again, for our listeners to get to hear about. So something else that I've seen a little bit of, of press on recently is is the whistleblower act and so i wanted to ask you what what is the whistleblower act and and what is kind of the um what is kind of the purpose behind it so it's, it's very similar to the federal whistleblower act but it's being done at the state level so there um you know whistleblowers which are usually company insiders can come and tell us if they think there's bad behavior going on that you know hasn't been resolved through the normal course and, you know, then we can investigate and, you know, get the information we need in order to try and stop the, you know, the bad behavior. So, you know, the information is crucial in, you know, preventing harm, recovering ill-gotten gains. But, you know, whistleblowers are afraid of retaliation and afraid of all the kinds of things that, you know, happened that made the federal law go into place. You know, they don't want to lose their employment. They, you know, don't want to be blacklisted so they can't find their next job. And, you know, they personally shouldn't suffer financial hardships for doing the right thing. So NASA voted on a model act for state whistle, you know, for state whistleblowers in the security space. We passed, you know, the membership voted on it um, recently. And I would expect that to see that in a lot of state legislatures coming up soon when everybody's legislative session starts. You know, it all depends. Maryland is a, you know, once a year and we have this word session for like three and a half months. Some states are year round, some states are, you know, every other year. So, but as people's legislative sessions start, I think, you know, people will see that more and more. So keep an eye out for that kind of um, statute in, you know, in everybody's states. There is one state so far, I'm happy to say the state of Montana, that as of October 1st, um, their whistleblower statute went into place. Oh, and great. from what I understand, there were people lined up and ready to start making reports. <laughs> well, glad that the statute is in place. And I'm sorry that so many people were ready to, to start. To, right, right. To well, you know, yeah. you know, yeah. and I, I sometimes look at the money that comes out of the SEC for the whistleblower awards. And I'm amazed. I mean, it's important things to shut down. And clearly the SEC's you know, hopefully stopping the bad behavior and their tremendous recoveries. And then there, there is a, you know, there's a 
pay out to the whistleblower. Right. right. These statutes work the same way. Yeah. So the last couple of things uh, uh, on the technical side, and then maybe we'll we'll end with m- maybe a little bit more of just a, a fun question. Uh, but the la- on the technical side, a couple other NASA initiatives kind of deal with, I would say, you know, rewards or payments when you've had a complaint and some kind of, again, judgment against maybe a representative or a firm. Talk to me about a restitution pool. I think, you again, another item I've seen some press on is that there's you all are working on putting together a restitution pool for people that have been defrauded. So, again, this, you know, this would be a state by state initiative because what NASA does is, you know, adopt model statutes and model regs. So there is a model act that we voted on at the annual meeting in September for to create a restitution pool for defrauded investors. And again, that's something that's got to be passed by the state legislature. And what it does is create an assistance fund to provide some financial assistance to victims of securities law violations who, you know, have been awarded restitution but can't get funds from, you know, whoever the target was who was responsible for making payments to them. It doesn't pay that. I don't think any of them are going to be set up to pay people back at 100%, but it will save the person from becoming destitute. Again, it's something that's got to go Mm -hmm. through the state legislatures and, you know, be adopted, but there's some money there. There is some criteria in there for more money, depending on what the situation is with the investors you know, how vulnerable are they um, by age or other factors? So they might get, um, there might be a multiplier in there for restitution awards coming from those pools. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we also expect that to, you know, to start seeing that in state legislatures, this you know, in upcoming sessions. Gotcha. And is that separate or different from, again, maybe some of the other efforts that I know NASA is making to try to help with some of the unpaid arbitration awards and judgments is that is that the so, same so or is that's that different? A, those are separate things there is also a model rule out right now for public comment so a, a pending model rule where we're seeking public comment on um, making it an unethical business practice for a broker dealer an agent investment advisor an investment advisor representative to fail to pay an arbitration award or fine that was entered against that person. So for those of you who are familiar with how the state securities laws work, if somebody um, has committed a dishonest and ethical practice, that can then become a statutory disqualification for maintaining registration as a broker dealer or agent, IA or IA rep. And then we can bring in a, you know, bring an action in order to deny, suspend, or revoke, depending on what the status is of the person, somebody's license. So it's a it's a way to encourage, you know, people who are subject to these awards, you know, to pay them off or to enter into a, you know, a payment plan to pay them off and not let them just stay out there. So they're continue to be in a position to, you know, possibly, you know, defraud other investors and or get a judgment based on their behavior and relationship to other investors and not pay those. Yeah. No, thank so you I would encourage people. Oh, I'm sorry to interrupt. I'd no, encourage people to take a look. It's on the website, and the public comment period is open now. So if they have comments about the provisions of that rule, to let us know, because the process for that is we gather the comments, review them, see if it's appropriate to you know to make any modifications to the rule proposal, and then hopefully adopt it, and it would go out to the states then for adoption on a jurisdiction by jurisdiction basis. That's super helpful background. And, and thank you for clarifying that. And yeah, I would just echo 
your you know sentiment for all those folks listening out there that um, certainly have have an interest in that that uh, that that you know certainly NASA would welcome welcome your comments on that. So, Melanie, this has been an incredibly informative conversation, and I want to thank you so much uh, for for coming on the show today to tell us all about all the things that are happening, the wonderful things that are happening at NASA. Let's close with something maybe a little bit more fun and. Right, we're getting into you know the fall season here. It's getting a little bit colder outside. Le- leaves are starting to turn and whatnot. So people are going to be spending a little bit more time probably inside than outdoors. If you wouldn't mind humoring uh, our audience, what's what's maybe one really great book that you've read lately, or maybe your fa- uh, a really great movie or TV show that you're enjoying to watch right now? Uh, I'm behind everybody else that I'm reading. Becoming by uh, Michelle Obama, and sure. I think it's a wonderful book, but, sure. um, you know, it's in my stack of things because, honestly, I spend most of my time reading security stuff, so right. I would recommend that, and, you know, Billions is going to be back on in January, and uh, I just sit there and watch that show, you know, when I'm not being a news junkie, I sit and watch Billions, so I'd re- I'm in the bees. I read Becoming and, and watch Billions. Fantastic recommendations, uh, Commissioner Lubin. Thank you uh, for those. And again, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Really, really appreciate your time and hope to have you back on the show here at some point down the road. Happy to do so. Thanks for having me. The final part of today's show features another installment in the History Has Your Back series. As a quick reminder for some of our new listeners, This segment represents the part of the podcast where we go back in time to help us better understand the present and help define where we're headed in the future. In today's History Has Your Back, we're reviewing a quote from the life of Anthony Bourdain. Bourdain was an incredibly gifted chef and storyteller. For those that never saw his work, his show Parts Unknown was fantastic. And if you love food, culture, and travel, I would highly, highly recommend it to you. But today we're not interested in food or travel. We're more interested in service. Compliance officers know all about service. It certainly comes with the territory. Here's what Bourdain had to say about it. You can always tell when a person has worked in a restaurant. There's an empathy that can only be cultivated by those who've stood between a hungry mouth and a $28 pork chop. A special understanding of the way a bunch of motley misfits can be a family. Service industry work develops the soft skills recruiters talk about on LinkedIn. Discipline, promptness, the ability to absorb criticism, and most important, how to read people like a book. The work is thankless and fun and messy, and the world would be a kinder place if more people tried it. With all due respect to my former professors, I've long believed I gained more knowledge in kitchens, bars, and dining rooms than any college could even hold. Does that sound a little familiar to anybody else listening to the podcast having empathy in our work compliance brothers and sisters acting like family using soft skills to the nth degree absorbing criticism and being able to connect with people as a source of knowledge (laughs) originally i was an english nerd in undergrad and then later i became a a law and compliance were a law and compliance nerd and i've read a lot of books and spent a lot of time in classrooms but the knowledge and probably better yet the understanding I've gained in being around other people to listen to their story, their challenges, what's impacting their lives, 
and the personal and professional connections that has brought with it, that is the instruction manual that has made all the difference in my own professional development and in my own career. And on a completely unrelated note, the 2021 NSCP National Conference is coming up just around the corner, and it's in person again this year. Just something you might want to look into. And that will do it for today's show. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Calfi and the National Society of Compliance Professionals, and extend a big thank you to our guest, Melanie Lubin, for coming on the show today and sharing her excellent insights about what's happening at NASA. Please join us again next time on the Securities Compliance Podcast, where we help you put compliance in context. Please check us out on LinkedIn. You can search for Compliance Context Podcast or on Twitter using the handle at CompliancePod. You can like us and subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you find your favorite podcasts or go to ComplianceAndContextPodcast.com to listen and learn more. 